I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got a special treat. I've got Horst Stipp, Executive Vice President for Research and Innovation on global and ad effectiveness at the Advertising Research Foundation. Horst is in his second career after spending from 1969 to 2010 with NBC doing research across a number of areas from research on how kids consume advertising to helping optimize the Smurfs, one of my favorite shows growing up, to Olympics research and ultimately neuroscience. Today at the ARF, he oversees a number of research areas, but specifically we're going to go deep on neuroscience, what really works in advertising, and how that meshes or correlates with the work that Byron Sharp has been doing, and ultimately a really interesting study around how marketers and advertising executives perceive consumption of media for average Americans versus what the reality is. I think it's time for a reality check. Well, Horst, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Alan. I'm glad to be here and looking forward to our conversation. Well, you spent a whole career at NBC, and now you're in your second career at the ARF. I'm wondering if you could give a little highlight over your years at NBC and you know, why did you come to the ARF? 
Well, okay. I started with NBC as a student. I studied sociology at Columbia, and that was in 1969. And I retired from NBC in 2010. So I guess I must have liked it, right? Well, I was always in the research department, but I worked on so many different issues and kept it really interesting. I started with kids' research, uh, like making sure the writers wouldn't make the Smurfs too violent, and also exploring advertising to children. Then when NBC bought the Olympics, we did fascinating research on why the Olympics attract so many millions of viewers who usually do not watch sports. I was also responsible for tracking studies on network images and how the images changed over the years, especially when cable networks gained prominence. Then more recently, well, like in 1995, when the so-called electronic superhighway came along, I was asked to uh, figure out if television would survive. So my conclusion in 1995 was yes. <laughs> I guess I was right about that one. Throughout, though, exactly how you do good research, that would really help management understand how viewers feel and what drives their behavior, really was a constant. So, for example, we were among the first to use neuroscience methods. We used them to figure out if fast-forwarding through commercials you know, with DVRs was a total loss for advertisers or whether viewers might still catch some of the branding and some of the messages. And the good news was they did, which was a big deal, because at the time, a lot of people were predicting that television advertisers would simply die because of the DVRs. Well, and then neuroscience actually was my first project at the ERF. Now, everybody knows about NBC, but I think I have to explain to some of your listeners anyway who the ERF is. So we are the Advertising Research Foundation. We have about 400 members, and they're advertisers, agencies, media companies, research companies, new tech, and also academics interested in marketing. And we try to address issues that are important to all those groups and really do the best and objective research to provide new insights to make advertising more effective. So, for example, we recently conducted studies on how advertising works today. We found, for example, one of the findings was that Advertising on several platforms is usually more effective than advertising on just one platform. So, yeah, I was offered the issue, uh, the, the position at the ARF in 2011, and it was very attractive to me that I would get a much more rounded and less one-sided view of the business compared to my NBC experience. And I also like the uh, focus on objectivity and high-quality research. Well, and they said I could work two days a week or three days a week. And, <laughs> and that was important to me, so I could spend a less, little bit less time working. Right, right. But still working nonetheless. Yes. I don't think uh, otherwise I would get bored. <laughs> well, let's, you talked, you highlighted a little bit, but let's talk a little bit more about the changes in media in general over that, the last 48 years. You've been kind of working in media and, and research. You know, we've seen digital come to life more recently and mobile. And you said this, well, you, you mentioned to me that you know, TV was dominant and still remains dominant. So I'd, I'd love to just get your take on the media landscape and how it's changed. Yeah, that was, you know, one of the things that really kept me interested in my job over all of these years. Initially, though, not that much change in television. I think after television sort of became, you know, super popular at the end of the 50s, not all that much change through the 60s and uh, until 
cable came along. Well, before that, it was the introduction of the remote control. I think that was a big change. And then cable came along. And with that, audience fragmentation, and there are a lot of discussions about, you know, the impact of digital and the impact of the internet. I, I think the biggest change really is the, the fragmentation. I think that has been the biggest impact that you can now watch video on a mobile phone in all kinds of circumstances, of course, that's a big change. You know, something like YouTube and Netflix, those are big changes. But I think the fragmentation is really the most fascinating and, and biggest impact. Because on the one hand, and you know, we're very much focused on advertising. On the one hand, it makes it harder for advertisers to reach a mass audience. But on the other hand, it also makes them easier to target specific audiences because now there are programs directed at, you know, smaller segments of the audience and they can be targeted better. So the other thing that's been really fascinating to me was how often the lasting impact and the endurance of video entertainment was questioned. As I mentioned earlier, 1995 with the electronic superhighway, you know, there were these books about being digital and all of that stuff that basically predicted that television would end. And well, they were certainly all wrong. What is changing is how it's being delivered. And like I said, the targeting issues. So I think, as I said, I think the biggest change is the is a fragmentation. Now, from an advertiser's point of view, I would add two things. Number one, it's easier than ever to escape uh, commercials if you, if you try hard enough, you know, with ad blocking and DVRs and all of that. And the other development, which I think is really interesting now, is that a good chunk of viewing is now going to advertising that is not advertiser supported, from Netflix to Games of Thrones and so on. And that's a very, you know, a little bit scary for some advertisers. But OK, that's it. <laughs> That's good. That's good. You know, when we last spoke, you also talked about a recent study on how marketers use media versus the average American. And I would love, I think it relates potentially to this TV viewing and, and viewing habits and new, new media, if you will. But I would love, could you highlight just some of the findings you guys are finding, what the differences between marketers and average people are? Yeah. Thanks, Alan, for bringing that up, because I thought that was just a fascinating little study. What they did was, and after we talked, I remember this had actually been done like five, six, eight years earlier too. A study among ad executives, and they were basically asked, you know, how do you consume media? How do you consume video? And uh, a huge amount of video usage was, you know, over the top and mobile and what have you. And then they were asked, also asked, how do you think the average American watches television and, you know, consume video. And they were a little bit more likely to attribute, you know, classic TV set viewing to the average American, but it was still sort of like 40% TV sets and the rest was all kind of different things. Now, based on all the measures that we have, they may not be absolutely perfect, but we can be pretty sure that over 80% of television viewing viewing of TV shows today is watched on a TV set and less than 20% on, you know, mobile devices and or internet and so on. We have a new CEO. His name is Scott McDonald, and he uh, talked about these data at one of our recent conferences. And the reason, of course, is, you know, obviously, if you have inaccurate views on how consumers behave, that's really not a good starting point for marketing strategies. And if marketing executives have distorted views about how media are being consumed, 
that really is not a very good thing. And that's something that we try to address and really focus on information, accurate, unbiased information that helps advertisers make the right decisions and really understand how consumers thinking and how they consume the media. It poses a reality check, I think, for us in the industry, right? Exactly. And, you know, and having said that, Alan, obviously we know it's changing. And maybe in five or ten years, that will be correct. But this is not about advertising in five years or making long-term strategies. This is about where you advertise next week, right? And you have to have right data, accurate data on your consumers. Now, to be fair, if you are targeting 18-year-olds, you know, the equation looks a little bit different. But even those guys still watch a lot of regular television, you know, because the way you got to think about it is if they watch three YouTube videos if somebody watches three YouTube videos, that's like six minutes. But if they sit in front of the TV and watch an entire game, right, that can be over two hours. So, you know, you have to think about that. Right. Well, and I know one of the areas that you focus on at the ARF is the quality of the measures and how things are measured and trying to help in, in those regards. And if it seems that there's a quality issue for these underlying measures, whether it's online video viewing or advertising viewing. And it must impact the ROI. And there's been a number of recent examples in the news, whether that's P&G cutting back on their programmatic buying or JP Morgan finding that they can drastically reduce where their ads show up and still have the same effect. What do you make of all of this? How do you process it? Yeah, let me address both those issues. So first, the one about the measurement quality. So obviously, media use is changing and it's changing among some groups rather rapidly. So everybody wants to know about it, which sort of opens the door for free for all for everybody to do some kind of study. So there's a lot of information out there, very often based on sort of convenient samples. And it's almost more like a press release for somebody who wants to be, you know, get a headline than really a quality research that provides new and really solid insights. Having said that, because of the complexity of media today, of course, it's becoming more and more difficult to accurately measure the media. So you could argue there's really very little out there that is absolutely perfect, but there's still a huge difference in the quality of different measures. And we really try to encourage the good measures and lead our members in the direction of the good measures. Now, with regard to your, and before I go to your other question, and let me add, so we've been in the past very, very vocal and spent a lot of time, for example, at our conferences, talking about this need for comparable data across platforms so that you can measure the total reach of, let's say, a program. And that is quite a interesting and important issue these days, because uh, I just read in the Times today, even though it's not an advertiser-supported program, that, I don't know, like 12 million people watched Games of Thrones live, I mean, not live, but watched it at nine o'clock on Sunday, but that they estimate that the total viewing on all platforms with HBO Go and HBO Now and delayed viewing and all of that, is going to go up to well over 25 million. And we know the same thing is true of, for example, something like Big Bang Theory. So let's say it's on Thursdays at 8 on CBS. It gets a really good rating, maybe like also sort of like 12 million. And then you have DVR use and all of that. 
and you know it goes up to 18 20 million so even though that's not as big as seinfeld and friends in those days or or going even further back where regular tv shows got like 30 million viewers but still it's still very very substantial and if you don't have those complete data you're just missing a big piece. So let me address your second issue. And again, you're absolutely right to bring that up, Alan. It's a really, really important issue. We found in our research that a lot of ad campaigns did not really follow best practice strategies. So the changes in strategy that you just quoted in terms of people reducing their digital spending probably comes from these companies really examining their practices, looking at their ROI, and deciding to go with a different strategy. And maybe some of them did attend our conference and did see our data, which indicated that there was often too much spending on ineffective, cheap digital inventory. That was, in fact, one of the findings from our How Advertising Works study. There seemed, you know, as you know, there's a lot of focus on efficiency and so on. So in order to save money, it seems like a lot of advertisers had put a, a fair amount of spending into very, very cheap digital inventory, which apparently just doesn't really work very well. And our research kind of revealed why that might be. And that is that the frequency with which a lot of consumers experience these ads was way beyond anything that any research has shown to be effective. And as a matter of fact, you know, there's some evidence that after you've seen an ad 20 times, it may actually have a counterproductive effect. But in the larger scheme of things, I, I think uh, this might be an example of companies really realizing that too much focus on efficiency might not be a good thing and more focus on effectiveness might just be uh, the order of the day in terms of really improving your branch here. Yeah, you've mentioned this this study about how advertising works and recently it was talking to Byron Sharp for the program. Oh, yes. <laughs> and we he, love he Byron. Has, <laughs> yeah, he has a, a number of research as well in this area. But you mentioned a couple of things from that research that the ARF is doing around you know the digital impressions and the effectiveness or the burnout, potentially the negative effect of seeing too many ads too many times frequently. Can you share a couple other findings from that report? Yeah, let me see. Well, but before that, you know, we know Byron's research and, you know, he's done great work in this area. And our research, our How Advertising Works Today project, really looked at a number of principles of ad effectiveness strategies that Byron has championed and found to be very important and very effective for advertising. And those studies were maybe done five, ten years ago. So the question we asked is, are those principles uh, still valid today? And Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you, Byron. They are. <laughs> so we found, for example, advertising really does work when it's well done. And if you increase advertising spending and you follow these best practices, that will really grow your brand. Byron has also done a lot of work on targeting. And again, there seems to be strong evidence that he was right, that if for efficiency reasons, you very narrowly target only heavy users and cut back on you know, on, for example, targeting users of other brands and so on. If you do that on the cheap, you won't grow your brand. So again, there seems to be a lot of support for that finding. All right. You said, what else did we find in our How Advertising Works project? There was one key finding that I should mention that I think is, is you know, very relevant today. And that was the following. What we found was through our research is that if you take a television ad and you maybe just cut a 30 to a 15 or you just have a 15 and leave it as is and put it on digital, YouTube or the website or whatever. If you put that on digital without making any changes, that that is probably not an optimal strategy. What we found was that the best strategy is to really adopt the creative to each medium. Having said that, you should have an overall strategy. So the practice, which, you know, is not as widespread as it used to be, but you still find companies, you know, having television developed, by, uh, being developed by one shop and digital developed by another shop, and they don't talk to each other. So you don't really have a coherent strategy that that really is not optimal. And we actually, again, you know, I love all this neural research. So we did neural research and found out the explanation. We found that if you have a coordinated strategy, then it builds, right? It helps people build their memory. But if not, it may even confuse them. It's like, we just heard this message and now we hear another message and they get confused. So it's really important to have an overall strategy, but then to adopt and customize your ad and your ad format to a platform. And what seems to be working better in digital, for example, you know, if you have a YouTube pre-roll where people can click away after five seconds, if you have a TV ad and the branding comes after 10 or 20 or 25 seconds, that can work very, very well because the branding is at the payoff, the emotional payoff moment at the end of the ad. But if you only have five seconds or a shorter period, you got to do some kind of branding right there at the beginning. And if you do that, your effectiveness is very higher. So that was one other of our findings. I have to say, as I listen to you with these findings and then from other folks that we've been interviewing, it seems like what was once old is new again or <laughs> you know, integration having a core strategy, focusing on effectiveness. I mean, these are core building blocks to being a good marketer, I think. You're absolutely right, Alan. And of course, you know, you got to look at the new situation and, and explore it. But very often for someone who's been around for as long as I have, you know, you, you kind of said, wait a minute now, we've known this for a long, long time, but now they put a sexy new name on it. So for, for <laughs> example, native, right? 
Mm-hmm. Native advertising, well, on television, we call it product placement. And, you know, 50 years before that, in fashion magazines or in travel magazines and in sports magazines, well, you know, it was sometimes hard to tell the ad from the editorial content, you know. That was very native right there. Sometimes you have a new generation rediscovering something which kind of was known for a while, but then it gets people forget about it again. We recently looked at that also in the connection with what we call context effects, where the question is raised, how does the, the environment in which your ad appears affect your ad, how it's being perceived? And that's something that has been researched for 50 years. But people who advocate programmatic sometimes say, oh, you, that doesn't, this doesn't matter. You just reach your consumer wherever your consumer is, and you can save lots of money that way. Well, yeah, and then you reach your consumer next to a porn site, and you have concerns about brand safety, right? right. Well, advertisers have woken up to that kind of problem very recently again, but, you know, these issues were around 50 years ago, too. (laughs) Well, you know, as we talk about how advertising works, I think you have to think about people and how their brains work. You talked about neuroscience. Oh, yeah. Where is neuroscience useful? And maybe what are some things that you've learned as you've delved into it? Well, we started sort of looking at it in 2010, 2011. And, you know, at the time, these were usually medical researchers who were sort of struggling to adopt this to the marketing world. But sort of I kind of watched them learn, and I think the progress has been remarkable, and I really do think that they have some very, very unique and important advantages. I think the first one is you really get insights on how consumers feel, real deep insights without filters, what you know, I'm a sociologist, so we call that social desirability, which is another way of people, people not really telling you the truth because, you know, they want to protect themselves or they think that some of their deeper impulses are not, you know, ready for public knowledge. And the other big advantage is that they give you second by second data. So you can ask somebody, so what did you think about the commercial? You know, what did you think about this program or this video? And they can tell you about it and they can identify some details. But this, in this world here with the neuro experiments, you actually get second by second data and you can really track exactly how people feel every moment. And you can do that with, you know, eye tracking gives you sort of an idea where they look, the biometric data which is like a heartbeat and skin resonance and all of that gives you sort of an idea about how emotionally involved they are. Then you have EEG, which kind of gets really into people's brain. It gets a little bit more complicated, a little more expensive. It's usually done in the lab. And then fMRI, which is like, you know, you go to the doctor and they take an MRI. So that's obviously a very, very difficult, expensive procedure that is usually not used for commercial purposes. So what's scalable really is eye tracking, biometrics, and facial coding. I mentioned facial coding. That, of course, really works well with smiles. So uh, it's perfect to test whether you have a funny ad or a funny TV show. And I think it's really taking off. More and more people are using it, especially for testing commercials, movie trailers, TV shows, and so on. You know, all data require interpretation, and you've got to be careful. It's got to be well done. But it's really, it's really progress. And I think the best application really is when you need detailed data and when you're researching something where people may not necessarily tell you the truth and how they really feel. Interesting. Do you Have you seen a lot of variability between individual participants? I'm just curious if people are more similar than they are different in how the instruments pick up on the effects. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I would say it sort of depends on your perspective. There are a lot of similarities and there are a lot of sort of very basic responses such as reactions to surprise, reactions to fear, reactions to something funny. Having said that, different people don't consider the same things funny, but there are these kind of reflexes. And so they are, you're right, there are a lot of similarities in some of those fundamental responses. I was just curious in particular, because I know the sample sizes have to be smaller just for cost reasons. Oh, yes. Reason. Right. Yeah, you're right. And that's one of the reasons why it's important. Your, your point is so well taken, Alan, that there are some similarities. But still, having said that, you know, if I was a marketer and, and my product, let's say, was aimed at women 20 to 30, of course, I would want to have 30 women in that age group in my test group and wouldn't really care so much how, how other people responded because, you know, there will be some, some differences. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I want to step back, if that's okay, and learn a little bit more about you. I do this with everybody that comes on the show, and I love this question, although sometimes it takes people in many different directions. But what experience in your past do you think defines who you've become today? Well, <laughs> you know, the one thing that I often encounter is that because when people know how much time I spent in television research, they think that I have like a pro-television bias. Mm. And then if they know me a little bit more, then they find out I actually do love TV. But, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's cable or streaming. But that's really superseded by my passion for research. I really try not to be biased in any way. And I really sort of take pleasure in, in doing that and questioning myself. So I look at it in a positive way that I want to use my experience to really understand how people feel. And I'm just absolutely passionate about trying to figure out why people do what they do. And it's not just media, for example. I'm just absolutely fascinated by political issues. And, and I'm imagining that if I wasn't in the media, I think my favorite job would be a political pollster. <laughs> so like if I would have been uh, Hillary's pollster, she would have won the election because I would have figured it out. And well, I shouldn't go any further. <laughs> Where do you think this desire to just understand how people think? Where does that come from? God, that's a really good question. And maybe this is the one thing I haven't figured out about people, why I have that interest and that fascination. It's really pretty early. I was in high school and they had some advisor and he asked me what my plans were uh, with regard to college. And I said, I was going to study psychology. And he says, oh, so you want to put people on a couch and stuff? Well, I said, not exactly. You know, I like really like advertising his stuff. I just wrote a play for our high school graduation party, which is all about television advertising. Huh, huh, he said, do you know what sociology is? I said, no, not really. But I heard about it. So, well, I ended up studying sociology and, and that was really the right decision. I always had this fascination with advertising. And that really is about, you know, what makes it work? How does it influence people? And like I said, I have no idea where that came from, but I'm all right with it. <laughs> what fuels you? What keeps you going now? I mean, you're you're still working, but you're you're kind of half working, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, I love to travel, and so uh, I wouldn't really want to work full time. But I know I just always had a real passion for for media and these topics, and uh, I still do, and I still have that kind of curiosity, and I very much enjoy it. As I said earlier. 
we get a much broader perspective here at the ARF because we talk to all of these different people from all of these different groups and we get their perspective, their issues, how they feel about something. You know, I used to see it from a seller, you know, NBC trying to sell ads for the Olympics and for children's programming and so on and so on, you know, and figuring out how whether we should pay a million dollars for, for a Seinfeld per week for each cast member, those kind of things, and whether we should take condom advertising. So these were all very interesting issues. And I don't know, it's still really, really interesting to me. And, and the fact that the media are changing so much really keeps it uh, very, very interesting. Well, are there brands or companies or causes that you follow, you kind of take notice of yourself these days? Well, Alan... If you don't mind, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna have to put in a really blatant plug for the ARF because you know <laughs> we have these just about every big company you know that you know from P&G and, and to to Google and Facebook they're all members. But I'm still amazed how many people you know, like don't know about the ARF and our conferences. And I tell you, you know one of the things that I always look forward is we have these two conferences every year. And you get like industry leaders and you get all of these new research pieces. And it's just absolutely fascinating to me. So like if I wasn't working here anymore, I would still want to go to these conferences because it's just really, really interesting stuff, you know. And like you said earlier, a lot of things don't really change that much, but then things that are changing. And what's so interesting, I think, is that technology is changing so much faster than people are, right? We get used to our mobiles and our attention stand is getting a little shorter because we get all of these things that we need to digest and so on. But basically, we don't really change that much, you know, but all the stuff around us changes so much. And how do we deal with that? You know, and I, I just still find that really fascinating. Interesting. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. The ARF plug is more than appropriate. <laughs> well, last question I have for you is where do you think the future of marketing is going to look like or where is it going to go? Oh, my. I've always <laughs> been very skeptical of especially long-term predictions. And I have a whole little folder of wrong predictions. <laughs> I made some myself, but like I said earlier, I guess I'm proud of some of them that I got right. Well, it's going to be complicated, challenging, and uh, very fast changing, right? And from a research point of view, we'll need a lot of good research. And the, the one thing that kind of upsets me sort of in looking at the industry, and I mentioned it earlier, is that there's so much emphasis on efficiency. And I can understand it, competitiveness, and, and you have to save money. But I think more than ever, you really need to understand the consumer. You really need to have good insights on the consumer in order to be successful in this marketplace, especially in light of all those changes that we talked about. And so I hope that marketers and especially their bosses, the CEOs in the financial offices, you know, that they're going to realize that and that in order to grow that we really need good research so we can understand all these changes. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been enlightening. Thank you so much, Alan. My pleasure. It was lots of fun. Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. Check us out at Atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K.com. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. 
with project management by Sarah Williams, audio production by Aaron Campbell, writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. We love to hear from listeners at info at atomic, A-T-O-M-C-K dot com. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.